there's no one present for teaching, so I'll put this together as a podcast and we'll rock and roll from there. So I'm Delia, I'm one of the registrars. This is um, a teaching session on the International Evidence-Based Guideline for the Assessment and Management of Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome 2018. Um, it's a paper that was put together by the Centre for Research Excellence in the Polycystic Ovarian Society, um, CREPCOS, the European Society of Human Reproduction and Embryology, ASHER, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. It's a big document, but it's really good. It's collaboration of professional societies and consumer advocacy groups, because there is an awful lot of stuff that isn't necessarily got the evidence yet, but the um, uh, inclusion of multidisciplinary as well as patient approaches um, and patient preferences gives us a better grounding of where to start from. So polycystic ovarian syndrome is a significant public health issue. Um, it's one of the most common conditions in reproductive age women, affecting 8 to 13% um, of reproductive age women, with up to 70% remaining undiagnosed. The presentation varies by ethnicities and high-risk populations, such as Indigenous Australians. Um, uh, important to recognise as complications are higher in their group. We've just got Caitlin arriving. I'm talking to the ether. She's going to boost to her, um, her three-monthly assessment, is that right? Yeah, I'll be in and out, sorry. It's all good. I will keep talking. Um, so with polycystic ovarian syndrome, there's um, diverse features, psychological, reproductive, metabolic, and cardiovascular. The pathophysiology. So in slide four, there's a um, complex... Um, uh, algorithm, but it covers everything. And basically, we're looking at insulin resistance in the liver and skeletal muscles. Overexcretion of insulin leads to um, excretion of insulin growth factors and stimulates androgen production in the ovaries. This leads to hirsutism, anovulation, oligomenorrhea, um, and obesity contributes to this insulin resistance. So you can get into this um, cycle of. Um, PCOS leading to weight gain, leading to PCOS. If there's one thing to take home, is this wee little blurb on um, slide five. It's useful for the exam written, but also um, a good blurb to have for the oral exam. And it's the Rotterdam criteria. The Rotterdam criteria is uh, at least two of the three features, polycystic ovaries, clinical or biochemical androgen excess, and menstrual irregularities. The guideline goes into this a lot more detail. The context for the guideline is that there's some controversy around the diagnosis and treatment of PCOS leading to different approaches. The guideline actually recommends um, different approaches, but more in, in customising it to the patient as opposed to having a doctor like scattergun approach. They worry about the lack of recognition of diverse features. The Rotterdam criteria, which we talked about before, is still endorsed. And they also endorse a research phenotype, um, making sure that you're specifically describing what kind of um, phenotype is present for PCOS when you're doing large research projects. Never forget to exclude other causes of amenorrhea. Um, and pregnancy is a classic one that is forgotten, particularly in oral exam questions. They wish to avoid overdiagnosis. Um, 
And in light of this, ultrasound is not recommended within eight years of MENARC. Remember that it's a multidisciplinary approach. Um, the things we're about to talk about cannot be managed in a 20-minute gynaecology appointment, but bringing it up is something to be addressed is important. So the guidelines follow, suggest the following outline of an approach to the PCOS problem. First, we need to screen, screen, diagnose and assess the risks. Second, we have to assess and address the psychological impact. Three, we need to encourage lifestyle interventions. And to be honest, this is very um, generalised and the advice that's given is probably good for everybody, not just people with PCOS. Four, the non-fertility pharmacological interventions. And five, assessing and treating infertility. Anti-Mullerian hormone is quite exciting. It's emerging evidence that it may be able to be used as a test for PCOS in the future. But not yet. It's experimental. And when it comes out as used for this test, it's unlikely to be useful on its own. So we then progress to algorithm one. Screening, diagnostic assessment, and risk assessment with life stage. Step one, do they have irregular cycles and clinical hyperandrogenism? If so, that's enough to say PCOS. Step two, if no clinical hyperandrogenism, have a look for the biochemical hyperandrogenism. And step three, if only irregular periods or only hyperandrogenism, have a look at what the ovaries are. How do we define irregular cycles? So irregular cycles are normal in the first year after your first period and as part of the pubertal transition. Between one to three years post-menarche, if you've got a cycle that's less than 21 days long or longer than 45 days long, that's irregular. Once you get more into the zone, three years post-menarche, you're looking at um, greater than 35 days or less than eight cycles in a year as being um, irregular cycles. More than a year post-menarche, um, you need more than 90 days for any one cycle. If you've got a, a woman or uh, adolescent that has got to age 15 or more than three years after breast development and they still haven't had a period, that is considered to be an irregular cycle. Clinical hyperandrogenism. So you need to put together the physical examination and there's some um, uh, scores that help with that. But together with history, because self-treatment can limit clinical assessment. If someone has a tendency towards having a moustache and a waxing um, or uh, epilating, you're not going to see by looking at a person. If someone reports unwanted hair growth or alopecia, this should be considered important regardless of how clinically um, severe it appears to be. There is no universally accepted visual score for acne. There is a visual score for hirsutism, um, and that's the Ferriman-Galway scale. Um, levels four to six indicate hirsutism, but again, it depends on ethnicity. There's ethnic variation in vellus and terminal hairs, and I'll talk about that in a second. The next slide is a bit of a cartoon of what is described as mild or moderate severe hirsutism. So terminal hair versus vellus hair. Basically, pre-pubertal, we all have vellus here in our bodies. It's, it's soft, it's short, um, and under the influence of androgen, it becomes um, terminal hairs. 
and um, there's an um, auxiliary uh, pubic facial. And the way I remember the difference is um, that if you imagine a, a teenager that's growing a beard, if they're starting off with the peach fuzz, that's still vellus hairs. But as it gets um, thicker and longer, that's your terminal hairs. Um, and it has meaning in terms of ethnic variation. If you have dark hair um, of vellus hairs, you can appear quite hairy, but it's still the soft, short um, vellus hairs, and it's not really hirsutism. But if you look at the patterns um, on the back and on the um, abdomen, um, groin and um, underarm, those are the terminal hairs, and, and um, that's what you use to analyse it. It's somewhat academic because um, the Fairman Galway score, even in endocrinology um, clinics, is not often um, used completely. The Ludwig visual score, um, type 1, type 2, type 3, is, is just a description of uh, female pattern baldness and again is helpful for um, looking at um, for clinical hyperandrogenism. If you can't see those things, or there's no history of um, hair removal, you can look for biochemical hyperandrogenism. And the tests that are useful are free testosterone, free androgen index, and calculated bioavailable testosterone. It's important that these tests are done with high quality assays, such as liquid chromatography mass spectrometry. There are other cheaper, faster ones, uh, radiometric assays or enzyme-linked assays, but they lack the sensitivity, accuracy, and precision. The interpretation of the tests needs to be guided by the reference ranges of the laboratory used, acknowledging that the ranges differ for different methods, and labs vary widely. Um, if you're assessing someone's biochemical hyperandrogenism, it's important that the woman on, uh, not on hormonal contraception, as this completely mucks up the test. Finally, um, if someone has only irregular periods or only hyperandrogenism and you want to know if they've got a diagnosis of PCOS, you can look at ultrasound. Again, as mentioned before, it's not useful for in the first eight years after MENARC because there's a high incidence of physiological multifocal ovaries. When you look at the ultrasound findings, it can be in either ovary, it should be more than 20 follicles or a volume greater than 10 mils. And that ovarian volume of greater than 10 mils is from when um, the ultrasounds were not as good. Um, and it's important if you're doing that volume that you rule out there being a dominant follicle or corpus lutea. Then, once you've diagnosed um, PCOS, you need to define and manage the risks for each individual. So every woman needs to have annual cardiovascular disease risk calculations, including fasting lipid profiles and a BP check every year. Um, should be aware of the fact that the risk of type 2 diabetes has increased, and that's independent of obesity. So if you've got PCOS and you're slim, you've still got a higher risk of type 2 diabetes. Those two factors are GP land things, but for us to remember is that people who have PCOS ideally should have a GGT prior to conceiving, and if they've had PCOS and they're pregnant, they should have an early GTT. After pregnancy, they should be recommended to have an HbA1c every one to three years. Women should also have screening for OSA, obstructive sleep apnea. This increases their quality of life as well as preventing uh, right heart strain and cardiovascular disease. 
there is a 2 to 6% increased risk of endometrial cancer. And the guideline is very cautious to say that the overall absolute risk is still low. Um, but from our perspective, you've got PCOS, it's a low threshold for a papel, even for women in their 20s and 30s. I know our practice is to give merinos endometrial protection, um, and the guideline supports that, but there actually isn't any strong evidence yet that says that this is a useful and protective approach. So I've alluded to ethnic differences in um, PCOS. Um, in the cartoon here, um, describes uh, hirsutism in Hispanic black and white individuals with a creative bar graph. Um, other things to keep in mind is that there's a mild phenotype in Caucasians. So Caucasian women, uh, especially North American and Australian um, uh, women, have a higher BMI as a characteristic. But for East Asians, there tends to be a lower BMI and a milder hirsutism. For a woman, um, who are Middle Eastern, Hispanic, and Mediterranean, there's a more severe hirsutism. There's a higher BMI and more metabolic features such as high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, and Africans. So it's just remembering the subtleties. There is also a five-fold increase of diabetes in Southeast Asians with PCOS, a four-fold increase for Latinas, and a three-fold increase for Europeans. Anesthetists are pretty familiar with the Berlin score. Again, it's not one that we'd use, but it's good to be aware of. It's um, screening for obstructive sleep apnea. So moving on to algorithm two of five. I wouldn't really call this an algorithm. It's quite wordy, but we'll summarize the next three slides. So we want to address and recognize and document the impact of PCOS on people's emotional well-being. And there are some um, uh, validated tools for this using the PCOS quality, um, the PCOS Q um, questionnaire. There's a high prevalence of moderate to severe anxiety with PCOS and it's likely to be worse in adolescents. Uh, something I forgot to mention with the ultrasound before is that if we're not doing an ultrasound in the first eight years after MENARC, but we're pretty sure someone pretty much has PCOS, they can be described as high risk. And for these people, it's particularly helpful to address anxiety and, and educate. And they suggested using an app, which I'll get to in a second. Um, it's worth treating anxiety but, and depression associated with PCOS, but be cautious with antidepressants that cause weight gain, because that just makes everything worse. Um, it's important to explore how PCOS affects psychosexual function. And there's a lot of dialogue and feminism at the moment about particularly the hirsutism. Um, and helping people have confidence with hirsutism um, that it's not necessarily going to impact on their attractiveness or um, sexual function. The following two slides look at body image and disordered eating. So if you've got wanting to inquire into people's body image, there's a series of um, suggested questions you can start with. Um, and I note that they suggest that you spend more than a d an hour per day worrying about your appearance about me a bit too much. Um, probably an easiest way to start with is what effect does this have on your life? The SCOF screening tool is a bit America-centric um, because it involves one stone, but it is a good guideline. So S, do you make yourself sick because you feel too full? C, do you have loss of control over how much you eat? O, have you lost more than one stone, which is six kilos in three months? F, do you believe yourself to be fat when others disagree? And F, does food dominate your life? If you answer yes to um, 
two or more of those questions, it's very likely of anorexia or bulimia. Algorithm three. They keep using that word, but I don't think they know what it means. <laughs> it's another full page of um, uh, paragraphs and bullet points, but it's still very useful. Lifestyle interventions. So there were a lot of approaches and it basically boils down to lose weight, which if it was simple, we would do it for all sorts of other things. But some helpful ideas they have are um, making the goals more achievable. If a woman loses 5 to 10% of their excess weight, um, it can yield significant improvements within six months. So having an achievable and feedbackable um, goal is, is much better than just telling someone they need to lose weight. When um, talking about these lifestyle interventions, taking into account depression, anxiety and body image concerns is really important. Um, and helping people be aware that healthy patterns have benefit to their reproductive and cardiovascular health, even if there is no weight loss, is also another useful approach. There's no specific diet recommendations, and, and it's the first thing you actually get when you Google or look at apps is the PCOS diet. There's no such thing. Just uh, a high nutrient, low energy dense diet, is, as we'd advise for anyone, is important. And the um, guideline supports the um, 30 plus a day push play mentality. Um, so more than 250 minutes of monitored exercise a week is a good idea. They recommend offering regular weight monitoring, but on patients' terms, explain first how the information is actually going to help going forward. If it's not going to help, if it's just going to make people more anxious, um, it may be better just to focus on um, supporting lifestyle changes rather than weighing. Algorithm four. So looking at treatment, um, it's kind of split into two um, components. Algorithm four, non-fertility um, sparing, and uh, algorithm five, um, treatment with the aim of fertility. So um, they recommend first-line combined oral contraceptive pill alone. This helps with the regular cycles and the hyperandrogenism. Can be used for adolescents that don't have PCOS but are at risk. Um, and as with a lot of things, starting with the lowest effective dose. Women who are overweight or smoking or have other factors that make them high risk on the World Health Organization criteria, it, it needs to have an individualized discussion because the benefit of it may still, for them, be more, in fact, is likely to be more beneficial than the low increased risk of um, DBT because the DBT risk, absolute risk, is very low. Once you've got the combined pill on board, you can add in metformin, um, and they suggest lifestyle um, uh, aspects of that to approach the metabolic features of PCOS. And because of the side effects of the gut, um, start low and go slow, and with 500 milligram increments fortnightly. Anti-androgens can be helpful, again, in addition to the combined um, oral contraceptive, although they can be used on their own, with spironolactone, cyproterone, or finasteroid. There's no evidence for a specific dose of formulation. Emerging is this um, medication or this substance called inositol, which um, mediates signal transduction in response to a variety of hormones, and it's experimental at this stage. If you look at it on Wikipedia, it tells us that it's safe and effective for PCOS, but we don't know that yet. PCOS and infertility has got a fantastic couple of chapters in the guideline. And I, by the time I got to this point, I just couldn't follow it anymore. But it is there, and it's worth looking at. 
And in this case, the algorithm is actually really helpful. So the first line management is letrozole or clomiphene or clomiphene and metformin or metformin or gonadotrophins. We'll try any of them and each of them have their benefits and, and downsides. Almost all of them are off-label for PCOS management, but widely recommended throughout the world. And the guideline says we need to consent women with it being off-label, but still go ahead with it. Um, second line um, is, includes doing a laparoscopic ovarian surgery, which is basically um, ovarian drilling. Um, and then third line is offering IVF, and that's where it gets particularly tricky um, because you've got issues with um, ovarian hyperstimulation. They have an app and it's called Ask PCOS and it's in theory supposed to be for patients but it suffers a bit from essentially being an e-book. It has the advantage of the fact that it is um, backed by all this research and evidence and expert societies and so on and so forth. So a lot better than a lot of the other PCOS apps that are out there. But I can't imagine giving this to my patients and then getting through it and orientating it easily. So it's worth looking at, being aware of, but I'm not convinced that it's as, as user-friendly as they had hoped it to be. So I have covered everything really quickly, but um, going forth in the rest of the um, slides, there's um, four exam questions that we can go over now. But you guys have done your exams. No, pre-exams, pre-exams, for those bad answers. <laughs> so um, if we don't get through this all now, um, we, you'll be able to do it um, yourself at home as well. So. so a quick thought on exam technique. Um, has anyone talked through this already with you? Briefly. Um, not specifically. It's involved. Yeah. People have got different takes on things, so we always have yeah. to hear yours. Um, I never felt all that confused by this, but I think it's because someone pointed out to me at the start. So um, list means list, don't get distracted about list and then describing, um, because they just want to know the names of things. So list and name are very similar. Compare usually means you need to draw up a table, um, which is, um, it's relatively straightforward on the software that they have for the written exam on the computer now. Um, but it's worth being aware of the fact that it is not the same as Word and um, so when you get the um, opportunity to try the online practice exam, it's not about practicing the content and your knowledge, it's about practicing the little annoying clicky-bocky things to put the words in and the fact that the formatting will look terrible. But just remember that it's always a replacement for illegible handwriting. So compare means usually a table with a heading and things underneath. Outline is usually um, describing a pathway and in this particular setting it's like the pathway administration. So this step, this step, this step. So listing it but also a little description next to it. Um, describe asked basically for a short paragraph but again short. It's it gets better. Correlate, um, it's self-explanatory. Um, but when you've got an exam question in front of you and you've got 15 marks, um, the list and name, keeping it short, is probably the key in spending your energy on the describe and compare. So exam question, Jan 2016, question 10. You're seeing a couple that's been trying to conceive for two years. 
Mrs. Smith is a healthy 32-year-old woman. Mr. Smith, sorry, <laughs> is a healthy 32-year-old man. His semen is normal. Mrs. Smith is 34 years old. She's always had an irregular menstrual cycle, averaging every three months. Her BMI and physical examination are normal. Her recent pelvic ultrasound shows six antral follicles in the right ovary and eight antral, antral follicles in the left, and her tubes are patent. Outline the Rotterdam consensus criteria for the diagnosis of PCOS. My name is Oligoamenorrhea. Yeah. Clinical signs of hyperandrogenism, yeah. such as fasciitism, alopecia. alopecia. Yeah. Um, and then there's um, polycystic ovaries on ultrasound. Yeah, exactly. So two of three criteria. So PCO parents at least one ovary, more than 12 antral follicles, greater than one centimetre or 10 mils um, on the periphery of the ovary. And frequent periods and biochemical low androgens. Um, and this is actually a wrong or incomplete answer because there's also clinically, um, and it'll be high androgens. Mm. I've just cut and pasted in someone else's answers. This is Ooh. good. I'm going to fix it before I send it up. Um, outline the reasons why Mrs. Smith has PCOS. Amenorrhea and polycystic ovaries on the ultrasound. Yeah. Perfect. Gosh, it does feel a bit repetitive, doesn't it? But because yeah. I would sort of probably get myself in a bit of a spin about, oh, are they, what are they trying to ask here? Yeah, but that's all okay. they want to. Yeah. yeah. Two other causes of ovulation that need to be excluded. Um, Pregnancy? Yeah. So premature ovarian failure, late congenital adrenal hyperplasia, hyperprolactinemia, and pregnancy, 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 pregnancy. And that's a big thing in the oral exam because um, oral exam has stems that kick off with a, a fairly benign case or at least not immediate emergency. And you move from that into, oh, now she's pregnant. Oh, now she's got this PPH. Oh, now you're doing a hysterectomy. And it moves very quickly in the, in the 15 minutes. Um, and if you don't pick up that she's pregnant, it throws you off guard. You don't lose marks. Like, you, you do, but not like it. Like, it's like the end of the world as it feels like. But remembering in real life as well that the person who's trying to get pregnant from you might be pregnant is really helpful. Describe the pharmacological effects on the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access, which result in clomiphene citrate increasing ovulation. So describe how clomiphene citrate makes the HPO access give you an egg. Well, I don't think I can do that that many because of clomiphene, but I do know that HPO access. So yeah. I probably do have that question. That's good. So it's because you got the positive, like <laughs> write what you do know and then um, pick up the rest. So. Clomiphene is a selective estrogen receptor modulator, or a SERM. So it, it antagonizes and agonizes estrogen. Um, so on the hypothalamus, um, it blocks the negative feedback of um, estrogen. On the pituitary, it... Um, yeah, I need to draw a picture with this, eh? 
So pituitary binds estrogen receptors, blocking the negative feedback of circulating estradiol and enhancing the increase in gonadotropin. In ovary, the estrogen agonist effects enhances the FSH stimulation receptors. So I'm going to go all the way back to the pathophysiology of PCOS because that was a good slide, and this is a good way of going back to it. So it was slide two, I believe. So, in the middle of the slide is androgen excess, um, and that comes about because there's more LH than FSH, and that comes about because there's too much gonadotrophin-releasing hormone. Um, so, basically, trying to increase the amount of hormone that, so the gonadotrophin releasing hormone without increasing the amount of um, androgens that get produced as a result of that. So it tells the um, HP, part of the HPO axis, to keep going and squashes one half of the, the O part of the HPO. But it is complex. Outline step by step your plan for Mrs. Smith using clomiphene. So in the first clomiphene cycle, what do you do? And then what do you do for the second clomiphene cycle? So if there's no bleeding, you give Provera for 10 days and then stop, which leads to withdrawal bleed. And you say that's day one of your cycle. You start with the lowest dose of clomiphene, and then on day 10 to 20, you encourage people to have sex more than they used to be, or that's the time to do it if they're not doing it very much. Um, then on day 21, you do the progesterone to assess if there's been ovulation with the rice. And if there is, if they've not conceived in that cycle, um, you restart the clomiphene cycle. The next one, assuming she's not pregnant, so she's given that one shot, you make sure that you do day 21 progesterone to make sure there actually is ovulation. And then if there is ovulation, you just encourage them to keep trying. And you do six cycles in total. And the reason why they recommend, and this is mentioned in the guideline as well, only six in total is because if you haven't conceived in that six total, six months, um, it's unlikely to work and um, it's helpful for people to know that and readdress how they want to go about it, whether they want to try IVF, which is not the cure-all but is another approach, or if they want to consider things like adoption or other ways of having children in their lives. And letrozole is, is another approach. So exam question July 2015. Um, this was repeated in January 2019. So ovulation is a coordinated process that results in the release of a single mature oocyte. I haven't covered this in this presentation, but there is a YouTube link at the end that you can look at that goes over it. 
natural, sorry, to outline the sequential changes in gonadotrophins and ovarian hormone levels, which occur from the start of the menstrual cycle to produce ovulation. FSH and LH, FSH causes follicle recruitment. Um, eventually one follicle outgrows the others, producing estrogen and inhibin. Um, then due to the estrogen levels, the feedback on the pituitary changes and you get an LH surge, switches from positive to ne negative to positive for 72 hours. And then you get ovulation because of inflammatory things, I think. So FSH, LH from anterior pituitary, FSH causing estradiol production, causes a surge in LH and trigger, triggers ovulation, egg is released, and the corpse leave TM production less to progesterone. That's such a nice simplistic way of saying that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this summary completely misses the whole production of cysts and recruitment of the dominant that you've mentioned. Mm. But, um, yeah, and it's quite lovely. Periods are less annoying when you see it. <laughs> um, correlate the hormonal changes with the changes in ovarian physiology, which occur during the menstrual cycle and result in ovulation. So I think this is about the recruitment. So FSH LH promotes ovarian follicle differentiation into a graphene follicle, which produces estrogen, which grows rapidly, swelling on the ovarian surface. The estrogen causes the oocyte to undergo meiosis one and more LH FSH to be secreted and the surge causes ovulation to occur. So it's the first half of the cycle. A 28-year-old G0, P0 with a BMI of 36 presents with amenorrhea and anovulation. A recent pelvic ultrasound showed polycystic ovaries. Summarise the biochemical and hormonal and ovarian pathophysiological mechanisms associated with anovulation in this patient. So there's part of it, the estrogen production from the um, adipose tissues was a negative feedback on the HP part of the axis. Yeah, the high, consistently high levels of estrogen would suppress pulsatile or that, um, the surge release mm. of the GnRH, which then would be to because you're not producing the gene marriage, LH production, yeah. or FSH production, therefore that's not acting on the ovaries. Um, but the estrogen, the peripheral estrogen is, so you do get development of the cysts and ovaries, but not the release, yeah. the ovulation. Five marks though. That's a lot. There's more to there. Yeah, there is. It's <laughs> It'll be that slide, the that insulin slide. resistance yeah. and everything. But the gist of it is still what you've described. So mm -hmm. it's almost like a constipation of all these ovaries ready to roll, but none of them being recruited to come through. Mm -hmm. And two of the most likely metabolic conditions that she may have. Type 2 diabetes. Yeah. Have we said that she's not PFOS? Do we know um, she's not PFOS? No, we don't. So polycystic ovarian syndrome? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's perfect. And yeah, metabolic syndrome. So type 2 diabetes, a pair glucose tolerance on the spectrum there in metabolic syndrome, which is um, particularly including the, the hypertension and um, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That kind of thing. Yeah, so obesity. Yeah. 
outline the criteria that you would use for each of these conditions? Oh, I pick diabetes and PCOS. Yeah, yeah. me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so PCOS Rotterdam criteria is yeah. what I've used, which we discussed before. And then um, I'd use HbA1c cutoffs for yeah. diabetes um, or impaired group glucose tolerance. Yeah, GTT, yeah. Yeah. So Rotterdam criteria for PCOS, HbA1c, random or fasting glucose or glucose tolerance tests for diabetes and increased blood pressure fasting methods for metabolic syndrome. Name one further long-term health consequences patient is at risk of developing as a result of the condition. Outline a strategy to reduce your risk of developing this long-term problem. Cardiovascular disease? Surely you could pick cardiovascular disease. You could also pick that. Or depression. Yeah, anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to stop here, I think. Um, there's another exam question to go through that you can in your own time. And then there's also the same question again um, that has been uh, summarised um, by, by Sam, which goes over things again. Cool. Thank so, you very much. That's awesome. Yeah. Don't be frightened by the fertility is like my head explosion emoji. It's, it's actually not too bad. Um, and for the exam purposes, it's just remembering the role of letrozole and clomiphene, um, basically. And if you're getting into IVF and OHSS, just knowing that it can be an issue is, mm. um, is all they can really ask of you. But the details of it are quite fascinating how they try to make it work out. Mm. What um, year was this guideline written? Because I was looking through my mm. notes and I was trying to find, because I was sure I'd printed it off, but the most recent I found was 2012. 2018. Yeah, no, yeah. I must need to print it again. And the things that are pretty new to me going through it, having sat my exam in 2017, is the not using the ultrasound for adolescents. Yes. Um, but in practice, I think the how you approach it, someone who's at risk of having PCOS, you, you treat it pretty much the same as someone who has PCOS. Yeah, but I guess what they're trying to say is some stuff that is normal in adolescents is not normal in adults. Yeah. So don't label before you need to. They, they also talk about life stages and um, you know, can you diagnose PCOS for someone who's postmenopausal? Mm. Um, and well, obviously not when they're menstruating anymore, but looking back on their life and their reproductive history and their um, menstrual history, you can say based on what their history was that they've had PCOS and that has impact for um, risk factors. Yeah, yeah. Risk factors. Mm. Um, but I do wonder what this means for GPs. Like, do people actually rock up for the yearly cardiovascular assessments? Probably not. Annual HBA1C. Yeah. It's yeah. mm. a challenge for them. That was great, thank you. Thanks, Tilly. That was great. Cool. I don't know how to stop this. It may have already stopped. Yeah. <laughs>